Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast on Hours 2. I am your co-host, the ever-emotionally bountiful Pisces, and this is my co-host. I'm Aaron. And he is the ever-confident and fiercely passionate Aries. At least one of those is true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we're very happy to be coming to you at the beginning of October. It is, of course, spooky season, as they call it on the Twitter these days. So that means that in a little bit of a difference from past years, the entire month of October will be given over to scary shows and movies for this. <laughs> Woo, indeed. So, and we hope to get on a little more reliable schedule here recently. I've been, a lot, you know, jetting about the country with various things. But anyway, we hope to be back to our regularly scheduled program, beginning with, and I have to look this up because the title is very complicated. We are coming to be talking to you this week about Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Yeah, I think it's even better when but you I include have, the punctuation. I was say, but I'm going to redo this because I actually agree with Aaron. So it's Dahmer hyphen monster colon the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Isn't that just the most confusing thing ever? It feels a bit comedic, to be frank, which seems appropriate given that it's Ryan Murphy, but inappropriate given the subject at yes. hand. Um, and also, it doesn't match the tone of this show. Like, I didn't know going in what we were getting into. But as the title suggests, I don't think we need to do a summary per se. It is a 10 episode long, what, an explication stu mm -hmm. like study examination, not only of Dahmer, the person, but also of his victims and of the people who tried to bring him down and the social inequalities and social fr fr fractures that enabled him to get away with the crimes that he did for so long. I mean, you're talking about this like it's a, a real-life story. I mean, I've never heard you so invested in a fictional <laughs> character so much in these in these podcasts. I know what you're implying, and it's just, it is a fascinating show. I, unlike some people, do not hate Ryan Murphy. There is a lot of Ryan Murphy hate, which we'll get to that later in the show. Uh, but I, I do sort of religiously watch most of his productions. And I have to say, I think this one has more in common with adjacent the american crime story mm -hmm. than it does with either american horror story or the politician or scream queens or glee uh, or any of those things there's a, a seriousness and a weightiness to this that i think is sometimes lacking at the and like i said we'll get to this later but i don't think it can quite get away from ryan murphy's shadow and that may help explain why i think some people are so against the show yeah but to be fair i think that with all of the excesses that we can associate with ryan murphy i think you're right to point that out and, and they're certainly not absent in this show i mean we gotta we gotta think about the real life source material here it's like that was insane like we're old enough to remember you know jeffrey dahmer's crimes coming to light and remembering how we we sort of as a society reacted to that when it happened i mean i i can't exaggerate how fucking bizarre that whole string of crime was. And so I don't know how much we can blame Murphy right. <laughs> for some of the ridiculousness of the show because real life was just as ridiculous. Right, and I mean, one thing that struck me about this show is just how horrifying it is in a way that American Horror Story rarely is. Like, American Horror Story is often very schlocky. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it has moments of, like, just genuinely disturbing, but for the most part, it's just, like... I don't know that I'm ever really scared. Yeah. Like, but I was deeply unsettled by this, both because I knew the story, because as you said, I was like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, whenever all this was taking place, 10 when he died in prison. We were slightly older. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but also because of the way it's done, there's the, the cinematography, the way that sound is used in a very like typical horror fashion. Like we get the distorted whale sounds which we don't know that's what they are until later on in the show but it's sort of a what's it called a um a motif mm -hmm. like an audio motif throughout the show like you hear this distorted whale sound which adds a layer of unsettlingness to the whole thing so i think that in that sense like i said it has more in common even with like the assassination of gianni versace than it does with any of his other productions to its benefit and i think that's part of the reason i liked this in a way that i also liked assassination because both of them do a really good job of like diving deep into the psychology of a murderer but also talking about the sort of broader social milieu of which they're a part mm -hmm. exactly uh we'll get to a lot of this later but that's also what one of the ways in which i kind of disagree 
with some of the criticism, but we'll get to that later. Right. So, I mean, you know, as we learn throughout the show, I think the show, in sort of typical Ryan Murphy fashion, one of his motifs as a creator is fractured time. Like, in almost every show he's ever made that I've watched, there is fractured temporality. Like, we switch between present and past and future, and, like, and it's jarring, but I think it works in this show because I think there is a sort of temporal, like, oh, I don't know what I call it, almost schizophrenia to Jeffrey Dahmer as a char- as a person, as a, as a character. Like, he mm-hmm. exists in all these different temporal dimensions. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think the show is quite, well, skilled at fl- flickering between these different moments. At the same time as Jeff himself always kind of remains out of focus, mm-hmm. which I think is true of many serial killers, because I think that culturally we don't yet know, and I don't know that we ever will know, quite what to do with serial killers mm-hmm. like i just don't think that we as humans really quite grasp what to make of them mm-hmm. or what to do with them either in terms of like literally doing with them in terms of what we do with their presence in our midst but also just sort of culturally and psychologically i don't think we know what to do mm-hmm. with them. yeah i want to go back to what you were saying about temporality before we move away from that uh because of course this being ryan murphy's show it's got all the budget you can expect expect to go uh with that so there's lots of money thrown at production design and all that kind of stuff which of course works very well with this sort of period piece show that's a couple of different periods kind of all wrapped up into one show there's a lot of painstaking work that goes into situating jeff and the other characters in the appropriate moments in time because we are dealing with the same actors playing these parts throughout uh which i think is particularly appropriate having us see you know a younger uh Jeff Dahmer still, of course, portrayed by Evan Peters, who plays him all the way through up to the end of the last part of Just Life that we see in the show. I think having the same person do that does do this sort of weird timelessness Mm -hmm, (laughs) uh, mm -hmm. with that figure, because as someone who, of course, did not know Jeffrey Dahmer, didn't hear of him until, of course, all the crimes came to light, in my mind, he's always that image that we saw of him in the news at that age. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's always who he is to me in my brain. And so I like that the show made that work Mm -hmm. (laughs) where it's like, even when he's supposed to be like 18, 19 years old, it's the same person playing the part so that it still figures in that same kind of timeless way. Right. So let's talk a little bit about Jeffrey, about Jeffrey Dahmer, the character as portrayed by Evan Peters. Cause I think I, I, although I don't want to make this entire pot about, Dahmer, because I don't want to like replicate the glamorization of serial killers, if you will. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's something really interesting going on with Peter's casting, like because mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of people in the reception, which again we'll get to later, but have really dinged the show for hiring someone classically conventionally beautiful, like Evan Peters and all that sort of thing. But it's like the truth is, he really does look like Dahmer, yeah. and I don't think. I, I, I mean, Dahmer wasn't unattractive. Yeah, and I Jeff, think, Jeff Dahmer had that weird, creepy, hot vibe thing that a lot of guys have. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I think this goes to our sort of cultural ambivalence about serial killers. We expect external appearances to match inner rottenness, and that's very clearly not the case. Which is so funny, because the sort of, I think the most sort of mainstream of all the serial killers would have been Ted Bundy, who right. was known as being a, an attractive, dashing man. I don't know why it is we keep fighting that battle when our first major figure of a serial killer that most people were talking about was an attractive man. Right. <laughs> and I mean, and I think that what makes Evan Peters' performance so chilling and ultimately, I think, so successful in highlighting the unknowability of Dahmer, the person, is because he has that flat Midwest affect. Like, he just speaks in a monotone, not quite, just above a mumble most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so as much as the show gives us sort of moments of Jeff's life where it is exploring his childhood and where he's taxidermying animals with his father and all this other stuff, because Peter's of Peter's performance, I don't feel that I understand why Dahmer was the way he was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's deliberate and I think that's okay. Yeah. Because I don't know that we ever can know ultimately who mm-hmm. he was. Exactly. It's like we kind of want easy answers sometimes, but life doesn't always give them to us. Right. And I think that that's to the show's benefit. And I think that's to the show's credit that it does a really fantastic job of sort of highlighting how a person like Dahmer is both exceptional and that obviously, so we like to think anyway, most people aren't serial killers, Mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, also utterly unremarkable. Um, 
And because of the way the show emphasizes the, his both his victims, who are overwhelmingly men of color, but also the social inequalities and fractures within American society that allowed Dahmer to exploit his white privilege, either deliberately or not. Which I don't know the show really comes down very strongly on whether he's using it deliberately, but it's clear that's what he's benefiting from, mm-hmm. is a very clear white male privilege to be able to do what he's doing and get away with it. Yeah. So, because we see this numerous times, like, there's the incident in which he molests the uh, young Laotian boy, is sentenced to prison, or he gets a, a sentence, but then is let off, basically. Mm-hmm. And then he turns around and kills the boy's brother, <laughs> who, as I think this this is probably the most infamous incident re- regarding Dahmer. And I think this is the one that stands out the most to most people, including myself, is when the young boy, um, Conrack, is out, you know, manages to get away from Dahmer. And then the flags down the police and then is returned to Dahmer by the police because of Dahmer's charm and his ability to convince them that he was really 19. And it's just like, it's, it's staged very well in the show. And I think really helps capture people's horror at the time when this was brought out. Mm -hmm. Because I remember even like seeing the many documentaries and there's like a million live, you know, true life documentaries and fictional shows about this that every time is mm-hmm. the one that just makes me like yeah. sick yeah that that's the tough one and what for me makes it so tough is that if i i can either watch it sort of with you know sort of with the understanding that's baked in from knowing how these stories turned out from knowing what was going to happen to that boy <laughs> when he went back i can watch it with that in mind which i think is how i'm supposed to because again this was all over the news you know when it was found out uh but there's another way to watch that scene i think where if i actually try to imagine let's say i were cast in, as one of the policemen like if i were an actor and they hired me to play the part of one of the policemen and so i had to try to figure out my character's motivation for what i was doing i wonder how much i would think about the alternative response where if i said hey i'm not sending this person back to this to this guy who's claiming to be his boyfriend would that be perceived as an unjust mm decision would that be seen as unfair or not believing this gay man when he's saying hey we're boyfriends we you know just he's a little drunk we had a little misunderstanding we can handle this right but of course the counter to that is when they make the offhand remark that they need to be de-loused having encountered the gay you know mm-hmm. gay men. that's what suggests in the show but also like in mm-hmm. real life, that they are, their negligence is motivated at least in part by homophobia. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, obviously, probably racism, too. Yeah, exactly. And that's and one that of it's the, very easy to dismiss. Exactly. And that's one of those things where I'd want to know, and I admit I have not done the research on this, I'd want to know if, to what extent was that conversation sort of liberties taken with the show versus an actual sort of transcript of what was said. Because obviously the only ones who would know what was said there would be Dahmer, who was dead. Right. And the police officers themselves who probably aren't talking. Right. I mean, one notable, obviously, element of this scene is is Glenda... Ja- not Glenda Jackson. Glenda <laughs> Cleveland, played by Niecy Nash, who is Dahmer's neighbor, next-door neighbor in this show, who really is, in some ways, this show's hero. If mm-hmm. there is a hero, she is it. Because yeah. she is the one who... She checks up on Conrad because she knows that something is amiss mm-hmm. with what's going on at this moment. And I think... Nash, who I think is probably more known for her comedy than mm-hmm. her drama, but my God, she acts the hell out of this uh, and really captures the sense in which Glenda is, as one of the episode titles calls her, Cassandra, because she's the one who's issuing all these warnings and no one is listening to her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is, and it is true that she was dismissed repeatedly by the police mm-hmm. in this, both at the time of this arrest or this incident and afterward, because mm-hmm. she continually checked up on him especially after she read that Conrad was missing. Yeah. And so, like, I think that that's where the show is really highlighting how it is that an institution, an American institution like the police can be, because they are, at the time in somewhat sense, dismissive of both people of color and queer people, that it enabled someone like Dahmer to get away with it and mm-hmm. literally walked someone back right into the lion's den. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, obviously the show does take some liberties with 
Glenda's character, she was not, in fact, his next door neighbor. She was actually lived across, like, next to the apartment building mm-hmm. in which he lived. So she's kind of an agglomeration of two different characters. There was another woman who was Jeff Dahmer's actual neighbor. But I think that it works narratively and, like, creatively to give Glenda the credit she deserves for her actions, like, mm-hmm. in the way that she was, like, the spearhead of trying to get public awareness of what Dahmer was doing. Yeah, but that that fact is also one of my own actual critiques of the show, in that because I, I think that it wanted to tell the story in this way, that offered up these critiques, I think, in a much more clearer way than I think mapped onto the actual reality of its time. I think had the show been a little bit braver, it might have actually let things stay as messy Mm. as they had been in real life, rather than sort of neatly wrapping this up so that there is a hero figure. Rather than a couple of people who try to do good things every once in a while. Hmm. Because it's much harder to make that argument about the systemic nature of the neglect that happens when we recognize that it's a couple of reports here and there and not one person who's hammering away the way the character Glenda Cleveland did. Right. But I mean, but I, I, I think that you're right, but I'm not sure that TV as a, as a sort of a, as a form or dramatic forms that we're used to can really do that or yeah, that we're but, not we're not as audiences prepared to accept that kind of exactly and i don't think you're wrong which is why i'm like i'm kind of like sheep shot for the show to do it anyway but i know but, I mean, <laughs> I, but it's ryan murphy so this is what i expect mm-hmm. like I, I think that something similar a similar dynamic is at work in uh, the assassination of gianni versace mm-hmm. like not that um the murderer in that one is a serial killer necessarily uh, well I mean, actually, yeah, it actually kind yes. of was now that i think about it <laughs> um but the point is is that we need a moral like Mm -hmm. because i mean if the show when we get to that is is being derided as exploitative i can just imagine how much more like vitriolic that criticism Mm -hmm. would be if the show had gone the avenue exactly but as long as at that point we're acknowledging that we're making the show to avoid criticism rather than to tell the story then fine uh okay (laughs) not sure i completely agree but anyway um so i think that as I said, Nisi Nash deserves a great deal of credit for her ability to really bring out this character. And yep. I think that she really allows us to understand her as being someone who genuinely cares and like is very emotionally invested in this because she gets reprimanded at work for crying and like losing her composure. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what else would you do if you were like, you know, being affected or living by like a person you suspect yes. to be a serial killer. Exactly, and that's one of my favorite parts of the series is how they uh, the show uses uh, the Glenda character to, without using these words, sort of explain how post-traumatic stress disorder can affect folks mm-hmm. who are sort of bystanders to events. Because at the time, the you know PTSD was a very new thing that was being talked about at the time. So I think for someone who directly survived, we might have understood that they might have needed mm-hmm. support. But there probably wouldn't have been a lot of general understanding that this, the folks who were around and sort of knew that it happened and it was happening in the building they lived in and on their street and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. would also be affected in that way. I don't know that that was really common understanding back then. Right. So I like that the show actually takes the time to use that character to point out that sort of effect. Right. And I mean, speaking of effects, I like the way that this both focuses so much on the victims. And it's clear from the very the very first episode where we get the young man who actually does escape from Dahmer's clutches and actually instigates the arrest itself to arguably, I think, the series best episode, which is season or sorry, episode six, which focuses on Tony Hughes, the blind or not, not blind, the deaf gay black man that has a quasi relationship with Dahmer and like. And since so much of the episode is through his perspective, there's not a lot of sound because he's deaf. So it really sort of sutures us into his point of view mm-hmm. um, as a character, not just as a victim, but as an actual person. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's a really important element of storytelling about serial killers that sometimes gets lost mm-hmm. in documentaries, including ones about Dahmerus. We usually get a Polaroid and with some sketchy, like sketched out information, mm-hmm. but we don't usually get to spend time with them, to get to know them. Mm-hmm. But that's a real exception here. And I think that that's one of this series' great strengths is that it gives us this entire moment when we get to learn about this character, his friends, his life, his relationship with his mother. Like, all of that is really important and valuable and makes his death all that much more traumatic mm-hmm. and all that much more wrenching for us as audiences. And I think that while some might deride it as being, like, crude or exploitative or, you know, I don't know what else, what other words we might use... 
I actually think that that's why this show is so important is because it allows us to not just see Dahmer as this sort of quasi-glamorous monster, but as seeing how his actions actually like impacted real living flesh and blood people. Yeah. And maybe it's just my take on it just a little bit different. Uh, But I guess I've always felt like at least when it came to Dahmer, and I think maybe it's because his victims were male, uh, I've never really felt like there wasn't that already. Mm. Uh, Now, of course, there's always been sort of just the fascination with just the horrific nature of his crimes. But I think because of that, what I've heard, just at least in my experience over all of these years, has been largely, you know, sort of sympathetic toward the victims rather than just sort of treating them just sort of as sideshow props mm. <laughs> to the spectacle of their own deaths. <laughs> but that's just me. I'm only one person. Maybe other folks have experienced different things with that. Well, I mean, the the, the advantage here is that it's played as fiction. And mm-hmm. so there's a, a, there's a level of emotional investment we get sometimes with fictional characters that we don't always get with... Mm. with um, when they're related in the documentary setting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which I think is part of the power of docudrama as a, as a form, mm-hmm. which I think this one this clearly fits into that mold. Yeah. Whereas for me, it's one of the things that always kind of makes me go, huh, with the form, because I appreciate the storytelling and I appreciate the function of the story. But when I'll put, I'll phrase it this way. <laughs> I have not done the research to see how true to life uh, the Dahmer depiction of this young man's life was in his relationship with Dahmer and all of the other stuff surrounding that. I don't know how true to life it was and I don't want to know. Mm. I never want to do the research to find out because I like the way the story was told in the series. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I, I agree with you and having done the research, it's fairly close. Like, But I, I won't ruin any more of that for you. Mm. Um but I also, what I also appreciated about this, and it's all the more remarkable given that it's coming from Murphy, is how circumspect it is about the actual violence itself. Like, w- with some exceptions, we don't get a lot of real attention on the acts of murder themselves. Like, we don't see a lot of it on screen. Like, a, a couple exceptions where he first hits th- his first victim, which is the hitchhiker that he picks up, who he hits with the dumbbell and then strangles. Um, we do get some intimations of the drill with Conrack, and... Other than that, we don't get a lot. Like we don't even, we don't see the death of Tony on screen, which I think is good. And I mm-hmm. think that it's to Murphy's credit that he didn't lean into his more pulpy, excessive impulses to give us that. And I think that that's what I think makes this show not exploitative is that it doesn't like get dwell with sort of lurid attention on all mm-hmm. those other more unseemly. Yeah. and gross elements. Yeah, and for me, I'll actually come at it from a different way because I like the fact that. We get an an interesting variety because it, it it's a little brutal when we see that first <laughs> killing. Right. A little brutal. I mean, compared to what we know that Dahmer did to all of his victims over time, not so brutal necessarily, but, but still on screen, pretty brutal. But we see a nice variety of approaches, which I think is nice because for me, what that did was it it kept... It kept reminding me as a viewer that I didn't actually know why Dahmer was doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Like it was like I didn't get to fool myself into thinking, well, he was just a violent monster who lost control and was brutal in that way. Because we see him lose control for one of those killings, but not for the others. Right. But also that he was this sort of methodical, like quasi mad scientist who was trying to create zombies or whatever it is that that was said (laughs) that I don't, I'm not comfortable with that because not all of the killings reflected that either. Right. And so I was just kind of left having to sit with the fact that he killed all of those men and boys and that I'm still left not understanding why. Right. And I mean, that's not to say there aren't like genuinely horrifying moments. Like we have a moment when he cooks a human steak, which is ugh, gross and unsettling mm-hmm. because it, but it's played so subduedly that it how like that's what accentuates the horror. Yeah. And it, but it's again, one of those moments we're not really given to understand why he does these things. Like he has a moment when he drinks blood from the plasma center. There's the moment where he ejaculates to fish guts, but like mm-hmm. none of these, like, I think as you rightly just said, add up to a coherent like psychological portrait like i don't think that any of these things are really truly explained not in the way that we would have expected like yeah. even his kidnap his dealing with the mannequin 
feels just strange, but not particularly revelatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. I, but I, but I think that's the point. Exactly, because especially because that moment happens earlier in his story. That's one of those things where, for me, it felt like sort of exploratory. Like he's he's still trying to figure out. Mm what's going on in his head and what his what his desires are and what what they're telling him to do. It's right. like he doesn't yet know. Right. And I mean we get like glimpses like his grandmother played by the great Michael Lerner, who I mm-hmm. who I love and I'm glad she's getting work in this show. You know, his grandmother's clearly concerned his father like share, his father Lionel shares information that he also had those kinds of sinister urges, so he thinks but he also ultimately believes that Jeff's malfeasance was due to a hernia operation and like mm-hmm. the the, I don't know the anesthesia maybe yeah, yeah. like mm-hmm. the excess of anesthesia damaged his brain or something you know but he also comes from a broken home his mother's kind of a space bat so but again those don't land and I think deliberately this is not a storytelling flaw I just think that that's the show's point is that that also doesn't really land as an explanation you, you know there's no real you can't really blame it on his family mm-hmm. either even though his father is kind of a sort of a jerk a workaholic but not, yeah, but yeah, not a monster. But in but, a, that fairly typical for its right. era sort of way. And it's like you, you don't end up a serial killer who eats a bunch of people. Right, exactly. <laughs> because exactly. your dad's a little stern. Like, that's not Exactly. <laughs> I mean, your stepmother may be Molly Ringwald. Also really great to see her getting work. <laughs> yes. um, but again, I don't think that any of those, again, add up to a reason for why he ended up the way he was. Mm-hmm. Which I think is why in the finale... There's a moment after Jeff has been murdered in prison, um, which I want to talk about that really quickly next, where his father and mother are fighting over what to do with his brain, and his father wants it to be cremated with the rest of his body. His mother wants it to be studied by science to see if we can understand what happens. The judge ultimately comes down and says, incinerate it because I think it's a mistake to ever try to like understand where serial killers come from Mm -hmm. because that's too easy of a solution Mm -hmm. which if anything is a thesis statement for the show as a whole i think that's it yeah that that's there it is turning the gaze back on us like and we can argue about how like if that's a cheap shot storytelling wise but i think that it is true that the judge in question did order the brain destroyed so i think that because it comes from a judge it has a sort of narrative an institutional authority mm-hmm. that helps us to see that like when we as a culture continue to look for these easy pop psychology answers in the family or social forces or whatever that sometimes people are just evil mm-hmm. and that's a really uncomfortable truth to sit with yeah and but i think that's part of the show's brilliance is that it may it forces us as viewers to sit with that yeah, uncomfortable knowledge. exactly and for me it's even just just a teeny bit different because i feel like it, for me when i was watching it it wasn't just like the show was saying some people are just evil <laughs> it's that even if you knew the cause that doesn't tell you what to do right about it right so what even if you found an an explanation in his brain that would have told us nothing about what to do with the situation it doesn't fix anything it doesn't make anything different right so and then of course one of the to go back to what i said earlier one of the few moments of brutality is when scarver who's the his fellow prison inmate driven by in the series telling like religious devotion basically beats jeff to death in the weight room religious devotion and also batshit craziness right (laughs) that was implied (laughs) um that's a pretty brutal scene yeah and it's and I, but again it's one of those moments that's deliberately uncomfortable because i think that we as viewers having sat through nine episodes of jeff being a monster kind of want him to get what's coming to him in the same way that we want that to happen to all monsters in cinema and mm-hmm. horror movies like we there's that moment of catharsis when yeah. we see the monster killed and so i think that that's a really striking moment in the show because it is that sort of it's almost symbolically like us as viewers are living through Scarver. Like we get to experience um, vicariously the pleasure Mm -hmm. of destroying Dahmer. Exactly. And it's exactly that living vicariously part is why I felt so uncomfortable with the scene and didn't like it because I didn't want to be in the position of killing Dahmer. Yeah, well, exactly. And that's my point is I think that that's the show's intention is to make us feel uncomfortable with that. Like just make us sit with the discomfort. But you you were just saying all the catharsis and all the... Well, catharsis doesn't have to be pleasurable. Because for me, it's like I don't get that at all. And And it's mainly because... Of not a, not related to any just sort of like I don't like people to die sort of thing, which I, of course I don't. But but of course this happened. I know how the story ended in right. real life. It's that 
I don't like the idea of vengeance is justice. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't like that the, the fact that the show puts us in that position, which is why I actually think that it's the best kind of thing that I don't like about a show, because I have to wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, <laughs> well, that's my point. I guess I would say that it's both cathartic and deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it makes us uncomfortable at the catharsis. Mm-hmm. It's bound together in those two things. Because we've spent, I mean, much as Jeff is sort of, as we're held at a level of remove from Jeff, just because of, like, as I said, of Evan Peters' flat delivery, of, we've obviously borne witness to his atrocities. Like, because we have such a complicated relationship with his character, it makes his death also complicated. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Because mm-hmm. as much as we in American culture are a very penalizing culture, and we talked about this a little bit last week or a couple weeks ago, and I love you, Philip Morris, we're a culture that loves and hates criminals. Mm-hmm. And so like it's it, that's sort of bound up all together in that moment. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is so really, really sharp about it. All right. And it's, you know, say what you will about Murphy. Like... He, every show I've ever watched of his usually has at least one of those moments. And that makes the whole thing worth it from my point of view. Exactly. And for me, you know, it reminded me of, of what I was thinking back when this happened in the 90s. Uh, that when Dahmer was killed, it gets back to that question earlier about sort of the debate over what to do with his brain and how, whether or not we can ever get an answer. I was like, one thing that we had had the benefit for from, you know, the, the character who gets a little tie-in, John Wayne Gacy, mm-hmm. uh, was that because he lived for so long after conviction, at the very least, he was able to talk about stuff. Right. And as best as one can, and, is, and to whatever degree you expect a person to be honest in that situation, he at least could explain for himself what might have been going on. And unfortunately, with the Dahmer having been killed, that opportunity got taken away. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, which I think is sort of great for someone like Ryan Murphy. He's going to create a show decades later to talk about all this right. kind of stuff. But in terms of life, maybe not the best thing to have happened because we don't, like, that's where any sort of narrative closure that could ever have come from this should have come from that. Right. But since that historical fact was different, no storytelling about that event could ever have that closure for me. Right, and I mean, that's one of the things I, I think I also appreciate about, about this show is the extent to which it really does cast the, the blame back on us to some degree. Like, there's a lot of moments in the last few episodes in particular where we see, you know, Jeff being sort of lauded, like, you know, by his legions of followers. Like, he gets lots of fan mail from many people, many of whom seem to genuinely, like, be obsessed with him, which is mm-hmm. creepy and weird. And I want to just take a short apology and say, sorry for the sound of sirens in the distance, but that seems apropos, given what we're talking about. So that was not deliberate, but it works. Oh, come on. Take credit for it. We planned that, people. We did. It was totally planned. So we apologize for that in advance. Um, Or not advance, but whatever. Anyway, so I think that that's one of those moments, again, that's sort of an implied thesis statement where the show is kind of casting a light on America's own fixation with serial killers, which if you grew up in the 90s where, you know, there was the execution of Gacy, Dahmer's crimes came to light, lots of other serial killers were mm-hmm. sort of brought to light throughout the 90s, but there's an entire, like, industry around serial killers that's not just of the sort of weird fangirl type, that's weird enough. But just that there's a whole publishing industry that arguably sort of came into its own in the 80s and 90s and has since become just sort of baked into all kinds of American culture writ large. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it's like, it's just the nature of that sort of crime. It's so horrifying that we can't not be fascinated. Right. (laughs) So in my mind, that's an implicit critique within the show of the show's own M.O., which is an interesting thing to do, particularly, and I wonder if to some degree the show's creators, Murphy and Ann Brennan, sort of knew what was going to happen, like whether they knew there was going to be the accusations of exploitation that have like been sort of the dominant tenor of the conversation, I would say, around and, this series as it's come out. I mean, I would guess so. Ryan Murphy just knows television, so he I'd assume that he would know well. that already. Like, yeah. So, I mean, there is that implied critique, but I think that's a good segue into talking about the sort of broader conversation around the series because, you know, it is one of the most streamed series on Netflix right now. It has divided critics pretty sharply. Um, it's got about a 54%, I think we saw on Rotten Tomatoes previous to recording, which, you know, for... Most of Ryan Murphy's 
Netflix stuff is pretty good. Like his, that's pretty much the average. And I think part of the critical apathy or critical division about this is in part Ryan Murphy fatigue. Mm-hmm. Like just because there's been so much yeah. between his FX productions, but also which tend to be much better reviewed mm-hmm. than the ones on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also we just want to point out that Ryan Murphy fatigue is not a legitimate basis for critique for all is, of our fans. That is correct. <laughs> just, Isn't he? And I say this as someone who gets a little tired of myself, even though I love him. <laughs> but uh, that that's not real critique. <laughs> we right. try to model better critique for you here. We do try to. And I, but I, I suspect that is a root cause of some of this um, antipathy toward mm-hmm. this show. And it is also true. I think that what we're wrestling with as a culture, and I think that this show, let me put back up, I think this show comes out at a specific moment in which there is a broader reckoning about true crime writ large. Mm-hmm. And I think that dovetails with the Ryan Murphy fatigue and why this show is coming under more high-profile fire than, say, Oh, any of the other shows that have come out about gruesome crimes, like Under the Banner of Heaven, or mm-hmm. which was out on Hulu, yeah. um, many of the any of the other shows that we've or that we've seen from various streamers. This one seems to be igniting a comment, this kind of commentary in a way I have not seen. Like, I mean, there were some voices about Under the Banner of Heaven, but I not to anywhere near the extent of this particular show. Like, mm-hmm. I have not seen this kind of conversation an extended conversation over weeks yeah um at least this is the you know the week or two that it's been out so so what things have people been saying well some of them have come from the families that or people related to, or connected in some way to the families of the victims who mm-hmm. said it's like being traumatized all over again that's the most i think prominent critique is that yet another right like another Dahmer show is just another way of forcing them to re-experience this traumatic moment. Mm-hmm. That, I'd say, is probably the most dominant one. Mm-hmm. A lot of other voices have said that it's just trauma porn, that there's, you know, even though it's attempts to decenter Dahmer, they it ultimately just recenters him mm-hmm. and therefore is exploiting the victims for its own benefit. The fact that, not, that very few, if any, of the families were consulted previ- previously to making the show... Those have been sort of the sort of, I think, bigger comments that people have made. Yeah. And those are generally comments that you can make about any show in this genre. And so for me, I'm like, okay, but tell me more. Like, right. I mean, that's that's how I kind of come down. I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. I don't yet have a fully fledged thought or opinion or stance on this. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it is puzzling to me why this show is coming under such sustained fire whenever literally there's an entire channel called investigation discovery committed mm-hmm. exclusively to covering stories like this one ad nauseum mm-hmm. and i don't see it ex- like getting quite the level of sustained fire as Dahmer is getting well that's because nobody watches those shows well, I think that- <laughs> I, i'm guessing way more eyeballs have been on Right on and it's Dahmer ne- than on any other and, particular right, because show. it's Netflix and it's because it's Evan Peters and because it's Ryan Murphy. So I think that the show kind of opened to use the common parlance in the SVU universe. The show opened the door mm-hmm. to this, and so I can see ethically why some people would raise these issues. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I come down on the side that to put it bluntly that not everyone has to watch this show. Yeah. Like I'm not sure that the exist that the very existence of this show is re-traumatizing unless you force yourself to watch it. Yeah. You know, and I mean and of course I've never been in the horrific position of losing someone to a serial killer. That is correct. And neither <laughs> uh, have I. But I have to say that I I think that I would be in the camp I probably just would never want to watch. I probably would just never anything that was ever made about it, I just don't think I'd ever want to see it. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I, so I'm just curious, like, why it is that this, why all the commentary about this in particular? So, but well, I, th- I think about ninety three percent of it is just the general criticism of the day, right? Because so much of it has the same tone as all of the other criticism made about literally everything else all the time. I think it's just because we're still in an age where everybody thinks they need to be critical of everything. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to that. You know, as I've written about in some places, like there's. A danger in mistaking criticism for critique. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, as we have done throughout this podcast episode, have pointed out some of the shortcomings in the show, storytelling, dramatic wise, Mm -hmm. and so forth. Like, it's not, I'm not saying the show should be immune from criticism, but I'm just not sure how far, 
like saying this show shouldn't exist gets us. Like I'm just yeah. not sure what that produces. It's the dumbest form of media criticism because the idea is to just get rid of media forms. Right. Which if you're a media critic, you probably don't want that to happen. <laughs> right. And if and if as seems to be the case, the argument is we need to de-glamorize serial killers, like and make them not celebrities, mm-hmm. then I think that this show does a fairly good job at accomplishing that task. But I mean, on the other hand, Evan Peters. I mean, it is true that he is very beautiful as a body like he is a beautiful person like this show does show him like it, stripped it, down it shows like. off his butt like every other ryan murphy show does that is true. Gotta, evan peter's butt has its own credit in the show. that is true um but i also think that you know the show does do a good job of like showing us the victims families and how they respond to the violence tony hughes's mother in particular gets mm-hmm. a lot of tension as does the laotian family who also are kind of like the center point arguably i think because those two cases are the ones that most easily fit into our model of what a victim or like sort of a virtuous victim looks like mm-hmm. because they were not you know because they are understandable or tragic i suppose mm-hmm. would be the better way like they fit more easily into our tragic model mm-hmm. and so therefore even their families read more as as more straightforwardly sympathetic because mm-hmm. i mean we don't get many of his other victims explicitly named those yeah. are the two conrack and, and tony are t- the two that get the most sort of diegetic yeah. attention um and we can elaborate I and mean, we, we can debate about whether that's ethical or not but i think that the show's strength is that it does show us how their families kind of grapple with the aftermath mm-hmm. of that and I think that we sometimes forget about that. Like, so like I said earlier, like often in documentary retellings, people are just snapshots in a photo and then we move on. Yeah. But this actually shows us the aftermath of what happens. Like they, you know, they take Dahmer to court or they try to, you know, these other actions that they take show them with agency, that they're not just passive victims, mm-hmm. but they actually do things to try to rebuild their lives. Exactly. But that's also where the show sort of, if if it invites criticism, it does so because the show has to literally construct that material basically out of thin mm. air in some cases. Uh, because we don't only just get the sort of the, the follow through and how it affects folks. We get stuff leading up to because the show does a good job of trying to make these characters fleshed out and fully human like the actual real people they're based on right. uh, but in order to do that the show has to essentially make up a lot of stuff right it has to show conversations that never happened it has to show interactions that never occurred between people who maybe never even met it has to do that kind of thing which unfortunately lends to that idea that it might be in some ways exploitative of the folks who were left behind right. <laughs> That's why I'm like. That's why I don't criticize shows at all for doing this sort of thing because I think it's just a fraught terrain. Right. I don't know that there's quote a right way to do it. It's just a a tricky move to pull off. Right. And I mean, I do think that exploitative becomes a catch-all that doesn't. It's a word that feels powerful but means little. Yeah. And, and I mean, find that that's very frustrating as a media critic and cultural critic myself. I find it to be a very empty vacuous term yeah. that just arouses feel it provides much light but little heat mm-hmm. if you'll forgive that expression and so the last I think you mean the other way much heat little light oh whatever <laughs> even whatever <laughs> i mean it is a lot of heat but little yeah okay anyway anyway <laughs> so the last thing i want to talk about is the way that netflix marketed the show so the other big controversy so far about this show was that it was tagged as lgbtq mm-hmm. on netflix's release which aroused some ire among yeah, its fans. i bet it sure did arouse something and then <laughs> it pulled that and it and, and took it away from but i actually think that that was a mistake on the streamers part and it reveals a great deal about how gay people queer people still struggle with the darker sides of queer history mm-hmm. there's no getting around the fact that Dahmer was a queer person yeah like that's just inescapable but more to the point his victims including obviously tony not all of them but tony hughes at least was queer mm-hmm. a queer black man so i feel like yes this is a queer story it's mm-hmm. a dark chapter in queer history yeah. to be sure but that doesn't but i don't think that trying to paper it over by yanking a tag from netflix 
is either wise or even particularly productive. And yeah. I think it actually would have been more productive for us as queer people to grapple with yeah. rather than just trying to efface the darker chapters of our history. Mm-hmm. I've got nothing else to add. I think you absolutely nailed it. And I mean, I want to just elaborate on that point because I recently finished a book called Bad Gays, which I did not really particularly like. I'll just say that. But I think that the book's thesis, which is basically that, like, because it, it outlines a number of bad gays in history, some of which I don't agree with their inclusion. Did but, they include Dahmer? They did not, actually. <laughs> I had to look at the podcast because it's, it's a sort of condensation of a podcast. Mm-hmm. So other figures they mentioned, like Roy Cohn mm-hmm. is, um, and some, some Nazi figures, other, like, <clears throat> more pernicious bad gays. But their point being is that we have to, in order to, like, engage with queer history, we have to be willing to talk about the evil gays, too, in, mm-hmm. our, pa- in our collective past. And I think that that's one of the things that I think Dahmer also forces us to grapple with is Dahmer's identity as a gay man. Like, he did haunt the bathhouses. He did engage with, you know, sexual activities with men. He did seem to be a gay person, or at least queer. I mean, maybe not even gay, but queer, certainly. Um, And you alluded at the top of the show to, like, the period specificity, and so I enjoyed the fact that it shows us, like, what gay culture looked like in the Mm -hmm. 80s, like, the bathhouses most prominently. Um, and so I really think that Netflix, I understand why Netflix as a company had to bow to public pressure because they don't want to be seen as being homophobic, but I don't think it's homophobic to say that Monster Dahmer, whatever it's called, is a queer show. Like, yeah. that's, it seems to me that that's just denying the fundamental reality of what this show is. Exactly. And I think you're right to point out how, like, the denial of it doesn't make things better. In fact, it might make things worse in some ways uh, because it doesn't give us the, the, the opportunity and the space to reckon with. Uh, these kinds of things, which I think we need to. Something that the show very wisely, I think, sort of didn't didn't say outright. But, you know, whether or not Dahmer saw his acts of violence as being directly connected to queerness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad the show didn't explicitly do that, but the fact that it's right there on screen invited the audience i think right. to to wonder that and especially i'm thinking about his father right and whether or not his father thought well does the fact that jeff is attracted to men and boys have anything to do with the murdering and the killing and the right. cannibalism because of course that is not the right thing to think that is and i'm doing gestures with my hands (laughs) trying to indicate that that is not what you are supposed to think but i'm trying to put myself in the mind of someone from that era Mm -hmm. and wonder whether or not someone in that era would have thought that (laughs) right and i also think that you know because this show is so much of its time like both our time but it's depicting the 90s like Mm -hmm. it's because of the presence of people like Dahmer and Gacy that we've worked so hard to fight against those stereotypes. Like growing up, like those were sometimes some of the most prominent gay figures, mm-hmm. which is terrifying, but we need to grapple with that. Like I don't, and I don't think that sort of excising that from our history does us any good collectively. Mm-hmm. Like we need to grab reckon with it. It's because of figures like Dahmer and Gacy who the show wisely pairs together in its finale that, millennial and gen x gays sort of like that's the shadow that we grew up under mm-hmm. and why it was so difficult for some of our parents to sort of between that and aids like that's sort of what mm-hmm. gay was yep. in terms of pop culture it's like you were gonna die because someone was either gonna kill you and put you in their freezer or you were gonna get aids <laughs> yeah so i mean i just think that netflix and more broadly like queer people need to be Less, but also more sensitive. Less sensitive to, like, this, oh my god, it's tagged as queer and it's an, it's an evil person, therefore it's bad, we must excise it. But more sensitive to be like, actually, we need to sit with this and, mm-hmm. more, and, and think through this in a more sustained and thoughtful way. All right. The way that I like to think about it is when I'm talking to my fellow uh, homos and homets about <laughs> all of this kind of stuff. It's like, think about how you would like to explain this to the younger generation. Like, keep that in mind when we're, when we're formulating our criticism. Keep that paradigm in mind. Think about if you were trying to explain this to someone younger, what would you want them to understand? Because I think if you, if you keep that in mind, then you'll do what TJ was 
just suggesting because you wouldn't want to throw away all of that history over that sort of knee-jerk response. You would want them to understand. So just keep that in mind. Right, I mean, because one of the things that we're always grapp- you know, fighting against nowadays is like, excise- <clears throat> excuse me, Ex- you know, excising elements of American history that we find unpleasant. Like, that's sort of the rights way of doing things. Mm-hmm. We can't do that. Like, right. that's not what we do or not what we should do. Like, mm-hmm. history is full of ugliness and violence and pain. But pretending like that isn't so... It's a like deeply unhistorical, and I would argue unethical because it doesn't like acknowledge the victims who were themselves queer men who died. Like, mm-hmm. So it feels just to me like perpetuating another form of you know amnesia. Yep. And I think that that's a real problem. Exactly, and and it does it for the worst reason possible. It claims to be doing something for others when it's really about just protecting ourselves. Right. We there's something that bothers us, and we just don't want to deal with it, so we erase other folks and their experience. Yep. I mean, as you know, as we've said throughout this podcast, like Dahmer as a show removes Dahmer from the center of the frame very often. And I think that we one way of continuing that project is to make sure that we like I'm not I'm, I know Netflix is not going to give a shit what we have to say. But well, they I, might. They, they green light everything. So we, maybe we, Netflix, if you're listening, this is our idea. Give right. us lots of money. Yes. Give us lots of money. <laughs> we'll gladly do like another pod, another podcast slash documentary show. I just I hope that. In the future, if some project like this is greenlit and reaches screens, that audiences might be a little more temperate in their desire to fix things. Mm-hmm. So do we have any other closing thoughts on, on Dahmer? No, I think we covered it all. Is there anything else you wanted to... No, I mean, I do think that, you know, go out and I do encourage you to watch it with the caveat that if you're easily disturbed, then I might avoid it <laughs> but it's worth it to see evan peter's butt yet again it is worth it and I, but I'm, you know more seriously i do think that it is a thoughtful show that really does sort of ask some uncomfortable questions and forces us to sit with the fact that there are not always easy answers that we might like mm-hmm. all right well give us a few minutes to freshen up we'll go to you know the powder room and then we'll be right back to do are you even gay Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, as you all know, arguably the best segment of this show is the Are You Even Gay segment. Uh, I personally love this, mostly because I'm the one who's usually more abreast, if you'll forgive the expression, <laughs> of what's going on in the world we of We will not forgive it. Um, so, <laughs> as always, I have one. Not always. Sometimes Aaron does have one for me. In a couple weeks, he'll have one for me, I'm sure. Um, but I have one this week. So... It's a it's a two parter actually. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask first of all, have you seen the nineteen classics nineteen ninety nineteen nineties film Hocus Pocus? Yes, yes. Okay, so you've seen the the original. I give you a lot of credit. I'm assuming that you're not a passionate devotee, however. No, not a passionate devotee. But well, but it's a good enough movie. So that's strike one. <laughs> so then I have I mean I have to ask then whether you've seen the sequel Hocus Pocus two. There's a sequel. Gay gasp. Yes, is the short answer to that question. Um, is there is a sequel? It when just, did it come out? It literally came out like two nights ago, which I already watched it. So Wait, I mean, the, that's a long time between part one and part two. That is true. It is all, over twenty years because I let me see. The original came out in. Do 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 do. In nineteen ninety three. So nearly. A very long time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to not going to elaborate on just how old. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very long time between these different iterations of this show, and the sequel t- picks up in the present when a young teenager lights the infamous black flame candle and returns the Sanderson sisters. Nah. Of course, thankfully they are played by Ben Midler, Kathy and Jimmy, and Sarah Jessica Parker, three delightful camp queer icons. If ever there were oh, three yes, camp yes, yes. queer icons. <laughs> And I will say that the show, okay, the movie, I mean. So the movie is fun, and it's delightful, and it's campy. Is it as good as the original? No. But I actually think that it is, in its own way, very much of the 90s. Because if you are a fan of 1990s movies, you know that every 90s movie had a sequel that was really fun at the time, 
but not nearly as good as the original. Mm-hmm. That's true of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yep. most notably. I would just put that out there. <laughs> it's true of Beethoven, and like it's, it's true of, of all of those movies. Mm-hmm. Of all, everyone's favorite Disney movie, or sorry, well, obviously Disney, but every great movie of the 90s had a sequel. Home Alone 2, that's another mm-hmm. great example. Oh, yes, yes. We loved it at the time, but looking back, it's like, eh, it's basically the same story, just, you know, mm-hmm. glitzed up a bit. Yep. And that's okay. And I loved that about Hocus Pocus mm-hmm. too. Like it, that was exactly what it was. It had all that I would want, for, including like Bette Midler chewing the scenery from left to right. <laughs> like, and she knows that she's chewing the scenery because it's Bette Midler. So I had a delight. I'm very struck by the commentary and like the reviews of the film, which it's worth pointing out. The reviews were also terrible for the first movie. Yeah, and the, I can see that. <laughs> and the only reason it became a hit was because lots of millennials like me watched it throughout the 90s and early 2000s when it was on the Disney Channel. Yeah, every... that's what it's for. <laughs> and so like, I, I, I'm getting to the Are You Even Gay part eventually, I promise. I'm just using this as an excuse to talk about Hocus Pocus <laughs> 2 for a few minutes. There are loyal listeners, they know. Because I, to- I don't have enough to say about it to warrant a whole episode, <laughs> but I have a moment, I have five more minutes to, to go on about it. And I just, I really, really loved everything about it. I really wish they brought Omri Katz back because he was very key to my queer awakening as a child. <laughs> but he wasn't there. But I will say, I'm going to put it out there now. That if they want to make a Hocus Pocus 3, they need to bring back the three teenagers from the original, and they need to bring back the three Sanderson sisters, and I will gladly watch a Hocus Pocus 3. Just like I gladly watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, which was definitely the least well done of the three original Turtles movies. And that movie shall never be mentioned in this house ever again. (laughs) But I went to the theater, and I still saw it, and I enjoyed it when I was a kid. And I had the action figures. I saw it in the theater. I did not enjoy it as a kid. (laughs) I mean, I did miss Shredder, but anyway, we don't need to get too far off, off that. Anyway, my point being, it's a lot of fun as a movie. And I think that critics would do well to remember that sometimes it's okay for movies to just be fun. That they don't have to have some sort of great, you know, import. They don't have to, like, radically reshape the genre. It's fucking Hocus Pocus 2. What did you expect? <laughs> like, I don't understand. They're like, well, it's just nostalgia. Well, no shit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like, again, it's like 30 years since the original. What did you expect? <laughs> he did the math. <laughs> yes, I did the math. But I really had a lot of fun. It's very queer in the same way that the original was very queer, if only because, again, three queer camp icons were in it. And the sisters ultimately bond. Like it's it's a little more saccharine, I think, than the original, which is a little disappointing, but not unexpected. Like <laughs> we live in a a less cynical age than it the nineties. So or maybe a more cynical I don't know, it's hard to say. Anyway, all of which is to say I really enjoyed it. I'm deeply dismayed that Aaron will probably never watch uh, Well, let me ask this. Will you ever watch it? Probably not. <laughs> there you go. So I have <laughs> to ask you, Aaron. <laughs> Are you even gay? Uh, less so than I was before this conversation. Started. I mean, I'm disappointed that you're not as passionate about the original movie. It's goddamn Bette Midler. I mean, come on now. Ugh, anyway. They come on First Wives Club for the win. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm not disputing that. But I'm just saying that for most people, this is the, for most younger people, this is the role that she's best known Yes, yes. <laughs> And I think she's okay with that. Yes. Like, that's what I love about Ben Miller is she takes herself not that seriously. So she's mm-hmm. like, I'm perfectly okay with this being my most iconic role. Right. A lackluster 90s comedy that was widely dismissed at the time, but has now become truly a cult classic <laughs> in all the best ways. Much like Rocky Horror, as it happens. But anyway, that's a different episode. Anyway, Aaron is gay, I think, but I'm still grossly disappointed in him <laughs> for his lack of hocus pocus enthusiasm. Yeah, but I'm glad you still vouched for me. I really appreciate that. As he would he would say dismissively, it's just a bunch of hocus pocus. <laughs> which is a line from the original movie. But anyway. So that's all we have for Are You Even Gay? Because I don't think Aaron has one for me this no. week. But if he did, I'm cutting him off anyway. <laughs> so once again, we'll be right back and we'll share with you our social media channel. Well, thank you all for joining us for another fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees. As always, I think this was a great episode. I love the conversations we have here. I love connecting with our listeners. Which reminds me, big news. This week marks the official launch of our Instagram page. Um, find us on Instagram at Queens of the Bees, where I will be posting both like snippet reviews, 
of the things we talk about here on the pod, but also other queer things that I may watch or read, and also things from queer screen history. So there'll be lots of things there. Please follow us there, because followers matter. This is the follower economy, so... If nobody follows you, you don't matter and exist. Mm-hmm, yeah, I don't think you're real if you don't have people following you. That is correct. Um, I think that, much as I wish it weren't the case, that is the case. Speaking of which, if you want to find me, I'm not even going to bother asking Aaron where to find him. I mean, uh, you can ask me. But there's no point, and we're running <laughs> out of time. So, in the interest of time, I will share with you my own social media channels. You can find me on Twitter at TJ West and the number three. You can also find me on Instagram under my personal account at Thomas West and the number three. And you can also find my Substack newsletter titled Omnivorous, where I write about lots of things. Right now I'm doing a lot of TV reviews uh, about House of the Dragon, uh, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, soon to be Interview with a Vampire, which will be another episode coming up down the line, the new show that is. All of which is to say there's lots of gay stuff on there, there's lots of fantasy stuff on there, there's lots of gay fantasy stuff on there. <laughs> so please check that out if you have a chance and also subscribe. And if you have a chance, please rate or review our podcast wherever you listen, particularly on Apple Podcasts. The more listeners and the more ratings and the more reviews you get, the easier it is to find us. If you have positive things, please make sure to put my name in all in caps and I will pay attention to it. If you have negative things to say, say, <laughs> pay attention, Aaron, because I don't read the negative stuff. <laughs> But anyway, leave your comments and feedback for us because we truly do appreciate every one of you who listens to us every week. We really cherish and value your loyalty to us. Rip, rip.